Welcome to the Jackets Online Podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Quinlan, joined by our recruiting editor and all-around uh, expert, Russell Johnson, who, uh, you know, Russell, we're entering a weird time of year. We're a week and a couple of, or I guess we're less than a week now away from the second signing day, right? Yeah, the uh, second national signing day, which is the, the traditional one that has really kind of lost its luster quite a bit. Basically, it's just like teams releasing transfers and like the one weird guy. And then all the schools that had like uh, coaching changes signing kids basically is, is what it comes down to now. Because like the main schools who are busy now are like the Tennessees of the world that have like a major coaching shakeup or lost 40 players to the transfer portal. <laughs> um, and then the, everyone else is kind of like, well, we got a scholarship or we got two scholarships. And there just isn't a whole lot of movement right now, uh, just kind of across college football. There's been really not very many commitments and not a whole lot of um, motion, really, because I think a lot of people smartly jumped in early on the, the transfer portal, and now a lot of kids are kind of just hanging out trying to find homes they're going to go to you know uh juco schools or all kinds of go down a level or whatever because there's just not enough spots man like other than tennessee i don't really know anyone that has a bunch of spots right now that they can sign anybody yeah no, no i agree the uh the transfer portal while uh the transfer portal hasn't slowed down in terms of kids going in um, it, it seems like the amount that are staying at the Power Five level has gone down. I think I saw a, a few Power Five transfers who ended up at D two schools. That's not that's not FCS schools. That's Division two. Yeah, like, that's not even like a real scholarship. Like, no, um, I think it. it, it you get like experience. academic aid or something. I think at that level, it's like basically like a yeah. fancy like academic scholarship essentially is what it is like it's not even the same even the same thing remotely and yeah i mean that's got to be kind of sober and you hope that people are in these kids lives like telling them hey man you got to be careful like there are kids who played a lot that got turned down by big schools i can name a few that most of y'all would be familiar with that ended up falling places they didn't expect to just because the the market's just so much different, man, and and there's so many kids out there. No one can take visits. No one can come see you in person to check you out. So if you don't have film and you don't have a pre-existing relationship with somebody, you are in deep deep trouble right now with this transfer portal business. And I think it should be a little bit of a sobering um, situation now for coaches to be able to point this out and. The coaches who've relied on it to get rid of bad recruiting picks, I think are going to have to start to get better at their, um, their evaluation piece, because I think it's going to be harder to ship kids off um, in the future. Now, as some of these high school coaches and, and uh, community coaches, quote unquote, and positional experts and all these guys start to see their dudes get hung up into nothing. Um, it, you know, it, it's just hard, man. Like, there was a kid today that went in the portal from Wake Forest uh, named Mike Allen, who's maybe like the most overrated four-star kid from Georgia I'd seen in a long time. Just didn't get him at all. Like he was kind of a, had an odd body film. I, I just didn't get the, the four-star with him. And 
he played like a hundred something. I don't know, did he play a hundred snaps? He might've played like 60 at Wake. And Four years? Yeah, he's a grad transfer, and I don't know that he's going to sign anywhere. And he's a defensive lineman that was a four-star recruit. Like, And in the 250 for most of his recruitment, I don't remember if he he was in there at the end. But um, it's just different, man. And, and everything's – especially now with, you know, things like linemen that are so boomer bust with recruiting, it can be so hard to um, to figure out, like – how to make that move if you're not playing somewhere and you're buried and then you you're like this kid and you're you're transferring because you're getting beat out by true freshmen and kids that were two-star recruits and stuff and yeah. no one's going to take you man like i i hate to be the guy to say that but there aren't going to be right. very many schools interested maybe in a grad transfer you might have a chance just because it's a one-year thing and if they need a body but like if you're a sophomore and you're transferring from you know, an ACC school and you think you're going to land in the P5 and you haven't played, you're probably not going to land in the P5, man. Like you're going to be lucky if you land in, in the G5 and most likely yeah. you're going down to the FCS. I have coaches all the time telling me that their FCS coaches telling me about guys they've turned down. Like that. I know their names, like that were big time recruits that were at big schools. And this is funny, man. I, I hope that, um, people start to pay attention to what the process is because this is such a different different ball game than it was a couple years ago when you'd have a couple hundred kids in the portal. Now you have like a thousand. And yeah. You can I think over, is it over a thousand? It's, by now, I would think so, man. Like, I mean, I can name like, you know, five to ten players from every team practically this year. I mean, even plays like Duke, like have had, you know, four or five guys leave, like where you wouldn't yeah. expect it. Like the, the, even the academic ones um, have had kids leave. So it's like, it's a weird thing. And coaches got to be careful with that, man. Like it's as one of my favorite Paul Johnson quotes on transfers was you have to be careful when you're picking through someone else's trash. Um, <laughs> when, yeah. when you're, I mean, cause there's usually a reason like why, if someone wasn't playing at a school and it's not like, uh, Alabama or something where they're just loaded. It's a, uh, it's a very concerning thing. It's one thing if a guy's like number two, like say like the kid that Georgia Tech took from Maryland, he was like a backup linebacker this year. Um, fine, yeah. you know, like whatever. That's not like that's that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the guy who's like third or fourth on the depth chart. That's not even on special teams. And there's a lot yeah. of those kids in the in the portal, yeah. man. And it is it's sort of crazy because it's like who who's advising these people man like read the room a little bit like you're in a lot of trouble you don't have the five p5 offers you maybe had coming out of high school you might be lucky in you know north texas or middle tennessee or someone will take a flyer on you but you're definitely going to take a step backward unless you're a big name kid or you were just like um someone that had maybe a really good relationship with a coach somewhere or something. But again, if you have that, you need to be going through back channels and trying to see if the schools actually have room for you or interest before you put your name in. Yeah, no, I agree. Now, uh, you know, speaking of middle Tennessee, did you see that they took the OC from Kansas? Yeah. Yeah. That was cracking me up. Someone texted me that the, um, the other morning and I was like, 
it's like, wow, this is a lot about where things are in Lawrence right now with less miles that, um, by the way, here's my bold prediction. I predict that Jim Harbaugh will be the next head coach at Kansas. What? Jim Harbaugh has a fascination with Lawrence, Kansas and the university of Kansas. And he thinks it's a great job. And I think that when he, whatever that implodes, finally, I think that's where he's going to end up. Cause I don't think NFL team is going to take a chance on him again. And I think he will end up replacing less miles at some point. So bold prediction, everyone file that one away for the future. Yeah, we will. Yeah. That's like, Last time I made a bold prediction was when the uh, the Braves were up 3-1 in the NLCS. We won't talk about that. <laughs> well, this one, the only people getting hurt in this equation are – actually, I don't think anyone is because Kansas is pretty terrible right now in football, and Michigan fans would probably like to see Jim Harbaugh leave. So <laughs> no, no, I feel like – uh, Yeah, I don't feel like anyone's uh, too upset about that, but – we're recording this on Thursday night. Georgia Tech on Thursday released the the full 2021 football schedule. And I've looked at some other team schedules. And, uh, you know, this one's interesting because it's pretty balanced until you get to November. And then it just goes right into the meat grinder. Uh, Georgia Tech will open, of course, with the two non-conference games they had scheduled, which were Northern Illinois and Kennesaw State. Um, both in it, Bobby Dodd. And then they play at Clemson. They'll host North Carolina. Um, the North Carolina and Virginia Tech games are probably the two most likely to end. One of them is going to probably end up in Mercedes-Benz, assuming that attendance goes back to a normal level come the fall. Uh, that could also get pushed back another year if there's not a if it's not a situation where they can sell the full house. I think the money piece of that uh, is going to – make them very particular about whether they do that this year or not. They're saying that they'll announce it later, obviously kind of a punting situation right there for, for the, uh, the uh, peach bowl people as they want to see what happens with, with their ticket situation, but they play North Carolina in September. So you have two easy games to open the season, which quote unquote should be easy games, Kennesaw, Northern Illinois. They play two hard games. games They won. Too too many games. Illinois won last year. I don't know how many they won. Zero. You know what's interesting? Rod Carey, who was the coach there, is the guy who took over for Jeff Collins, right? Yeah. At yeah, Temple. Temple. And Temple, I was talking to a buddy of mine that may or may not have been on that staff uh, and knows those Temple kids and said that that's quite a disaster. Like, So I don't know what's going on there. It seems to have – you know, Jerry Kill had the thing rolling, and then Dave Doran came in and, and did a good job. And our carry seemed to be maintaining things, and then the wheels seemed to be coming off there. And then the wheels came all the way off at Temple. They've lost, they've had tons of kids leave. They were terrible this season. So it seems like maybe things were trending the wrong way when when Temple did their double cash in move when they got the Jeff Collins and Manny Diaz payouts. They hired yeah. Rod Carey and um, just sort of yeah nothing happened and maybe it's the revenge of that guy who was the tight end special teams coach ed foley who they refused to hire as the head coach even though he had been on like four different staffs or something there but yeah so they play so you play two two games you should win to open the season right then they play at clemson which is a loss like let's be real here north carolina is going to be a very hard game north carolina is really good north carolina's defense has been terrible uh pretty much 
every year. Um, going back to, you'd have to go back to Butch Davis and probably before that, the last time they're decent on defense, that's one thing Mac Brown's trying to turn around. Be interesting to see kind of what happens there. They have, they've really upped the ante in their talent level. And the offense is pretty dynamic, but they lost both their running backs and I think one of their star receivers, maybe, maybe two. Mm-hmm. Um, you play Pitt, who that's always a dogfight. You, you know, even as much as Georgia Tech struggled the last two years, they've played them really tight. Go to Duke, you should beat Duke at Duke. Um, go to Virginia, which has been a house of horrors for Georgia Tech since 1990. Um, I think they've won twice in that time span, but uh, you know, that's a winnable game. And then Virginia tech, I think is going to be terrible this year. Uh, they, yeah. they've lost a lot and the Joseph Fuente all but got fired. I don't know what happened there. He was, it seemed like he was destined to be fired and then nothing happened. So I don't know if that was a money thing or what, but they pumped the brakes there and he's back and their quarterback left a whole bunch of guys have, went pro on them and they just looked like a hot mess, even though they had one of the most experienced teams in the ACC last year. So that's your through October, right? That's a pretty manageable stretch. You should be in a position to go to a bowl game after all of that. Let's say you're at four or five wins, right? Yep. Then you get into at Miami, which you don't know what version of Miami will be playing at that point. It's, it's not favorable that you're getting them in November instead of um, September when Derek King might still be out uh, coming back from his knee injury. So that'll be an interesting piece. But by November 6th, they could have also quit on the season by that point, <laughs> which has happened quite a few times uh, down in Miami over with previous regimes. So, uh, you know, that, that's a little bit of a wild card game, but on paper, not a great matchup. Boston College, who was re- I was really impressed with the job that Jeff Halfley did this year, taking over for Steve Adazio, a program that had been kind of stuck in that four to seven wins a year. They couldn't kind of get out of that plateau. And he did a really nice job um, in a, a very strange season and got them kind of back winning. They've been recruiting and taking some good transfers. And I'll be curious. I think he's done a really nice job there, um, see how that team looks. Again, that could be a situation where they're a little bit different come November 13th. Just I, I don't know what their depth situation was like, and that kind of got them a little bit this year as the season went on and they lost some guys. And then you go into the real grinder in the last two games. You play at Notre Dame November 20th, which there's no way in hell that's not going to be a miserable weather game. Like, that's yeah. got to be freezing. And you, you live in the Midwest, Russell. I imagine that November 20th, I mean, there's a chance of snow at least, probably, right? Like, oh, at the very least, there's a chance of snow, wind, and, and possibly even, you know, single-digit wind chills. I mean, that that kind of stuff that's well known in November. And then clean old-fashioned hate to end the the season, and again, another not great matchup. So you know, it's going to be an interesting year. This is um, is something we talk about a lot. Um, you know time to kind of start to see the positive sides of what you're doing and your rebuild and the talent levels very much ticked up on the Georgia tech roster. And so it's not a three, four, win expectation. Now it bumps a little higher than that to me. I think Yeah. to me, 
the worst case scenario is four wins. Like if they just screw up and the best case scenario is probably seven in the regular season. So it's like, so I'm, you know, expecting somewhere to fall in that range. I said going into this past year, uh, three to five was my projection. Um, that was before the, they lost a game for COVID. So uh, with the altered schedule and playing more ACC games and all of that, that was with the pre-existing schedule where they would have played like Wofford or whoever it was. I think they got canceled. It was Wofford that canceled, got canceled. Okay. Um, so, you know, I think it was interesting that the ACC stuck with the same crossover games. Uh, I guess it didn't really matter because like Boston College was up there last year. So them coming here is not a big deal. Pitt gets to come here three years in a row. Whoop to do. The Miami game at Miami last year, 2020, was canceled, so they didn't go there three years in a row. So, you know, it is what it is there. Um, lost a turn with Virginia and Virginia Tech through the scheduling thing. Um, I don't know, man. I mean, what do you think when you look at the schedule, Russell? So, I mean, you know, kind of like you said, the, the non-conference, those are two two very winnable games. You lose either one of those or it's even close in the fourth quarter. You know, you're going to have some seriously upset and angry people on message boards, social media, um, and and that's where things could get ugly in a hurry. If, uh, like I said, if either one of those games are even close, um, Northern Illinois lost quite a bit of talent to the to the transfer portal and, and graduation, and, and like I said, they were winless this season anyway. And in Kennesaw State, Kennesaw State, you really don't gain anything by playing them, but it's a fun game, I'm sure, for the Kennesaw State kids. To, get the chance to, to line up with, with Georgia Tech and and it should be just that. It should be it should be fun in theory, but once the 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 toe beats weather, the game should be out of hand rather quickly. And and if it's not, then you know Collins is gonna have to to do something quickly because like I said, you know, those are the two games that you just cannot lose. Uh, and then once you get to Clemson, uh, Clemson, like you said, you know, we're gonna we're gonna call that a loss. Uh, Clemson's replacing quite a bit of talent, but Clemson is still Clemson until further notice. Uh, North Carolina game, like you were talking about, is uh, it's going to be tough. Uh, Sam Howell's got a lot of weapons to to replace. Um, I think uh, Josh Downs, you know, formerly from from North Gwinnett, is going to have a chance to really break out this coming season. And uh, there's going to be like a lot of pressure on Howell to to showcase himself. He's you know he is I believe he's going into the next season as one of the top. Um, NFL draft quarterbacks, like the quarterback. Yeah, I would think he would be one of the top probably five and the projected for for 2022 NFL draft. Yeah, yeah, and then you know the pit game, like you said, it's uh, they're going down to Atlanta again. It'll be interesting to see what what they've got. It, they've they're replacing a lot of talent as well. You know they they had a really good defense last year. The front seven was one of the best I think Georgia Tech played all year, and then you get to Duke and Virginia. Those are two very winnable games. You know, Virginia still is loading up on transfers quite a bit. And, and Duke is you – know, I'm really kind of surprised that, that Cutcliffe didn't retire, to be honest with you. Um, you know, Duke had a, a really tough year, and, and it, it seems kind of like a, a transition coming, um, but it just doesn't seem to be, I guess, the right time. So, so that one will be – those are two games that I, I don't – I wouldn't say I expect them to win, but they should win. And then you get to Virginia Tech, and, and you know Fuente has really struggled with recruiting. Um, he's he's really seemed to be recruiting himself to try to get another job more than he's been <laughs> recruiting in 
the uh, you know the the current classes like you know the 2021 class was not great. The 2020 class he overly invested in the state of uh, Texas, and then the kids decommitted and signed elsewhere and never really found replacements for him. Uh, he ended up losing Hendon Hooker, who's now at Tennessee, and uh, he, the running back left for the NFL. So Virginia Tech's going to be down next year, kind of like you were saying. Uh, you know, Georgia Tech can, can very easily win that one. And then Miami, like you were talking about with De'Ara King, is, is he healthy? Is, is Jake Garcia playing at that point? You know, what's going on there with that position? Um, and then the, they've added so many transfers, Miami has, over the years that you could kind of see the, the wheels fall off and the, the Manny Diaz situation get hot really quickly. Uh, yeah, I mean, they've underachieved a lot with – the talent they've had even with Manny and I mean, even you go back and look at the game they lost to Georgia Tech two years ago is probably one of the ugliest losses Miami's had in a long time where they missed all those field goals had all those yeah. kicks blocked I mean is they've they've really not they've they've shown like these flashes where you're like oh they look like they might be back and then you know Derek King gets knocked out and you watch their offense you're like whoa <laughs> yeah. You know, what's it going to look like without is he really carrying their offense for them like yeah. um they just they like i mean how did, they never run him back last year really like i you don't understand like some of those things can even happen at a place like miami but yeah. they just and then look like weird a weird team to me they they lost their they're losing their defensive coordinator i don't know if it's public as of right now but i'm hearing and being told that he's going to be joining lsu staff as the, uh, the linebackers coach, I don't, I don't think that's breaking news. I think that's been kind of reported somewhere, but I, I believe that's what's going to happen. So they're going to be looking for a new defensive coordinator. I mean, they, they lost their safety coach, who was one of their best recruiters, who's now at Utah State. Um, so there's a lot of turnover going on in Miami. And then you get to, um, you know, like you talked about, who one of the, the contenders for, for coach of the year last year in, in Halfley at Boston College. Uh, you know, if that quarterback's still healthy, they've got a chance every time they put the helmets on. Yeah, he's a gamer. That kid's like – he came from Notre Dame where he got Ian Book and just kind of knocked him out of contention, understandably. And he just was like totally a man. And what ended up happening to him is was not kind of unexpected. He got kind of broken down as the season went on towards the end there. Just – I mean, he was extending so many plays to make things happen. But defensively, they've been pretty solid. And, uh, yeah. you know, you know that's going to be a tough game. I mean, even go back to Adazio, that, that's always one of those teams that matches up weird with Georgia Tech because they're so physical, particularly usually on the lines of scrimmage with offensive and defensive linemen. That's just been sort of the MO for Boston College for forever. And uh, I even think back to the game in Ireland in 2016. The Georgia Tech played them. That was super close, but it's a that's a you know that'll be an interesting game, and I'm really curious what their second year looks like. And uh, I should probably look at what their schedule looks like. Yeah, and then uh, Boston College's schedule. Notre Dame. I just feel like I feel like there's a lot of questions there. I don't. I wouldn't necessarily call that a, a winnable game. I wouldn't necessarily call it a toss up, but. I really want to know what Notre Dame's going to do because, you know, you're, well, they hired a great defensive coordinator, right? And Marcus Freeman from Cincinnati. Oh yeah. Yeah. Home but their offense is still kind of weird. Like I, 
felt like Ian Book really carried them, and I was unimpressed with some of their skill guys. Particularly, they didn't really have a playmaking wide receiver, in my opinion, that was like a guy that could vertically stretch you out. Like they just – they looked um, – almost old fashioned in some ways with how they played offense at times with uh, you know, really no down the field passing game. Does that change with their offense this year with, without book? Um, I don't know. You wonder how much of like was hit, was that him carrying those guys and, and all of that. And I, that's going to be a really interesting piece for, for me as I watch that Notre Dame team. I agree there. I don't think they're going to be the same Notre Dame that, uh, you know, they're. I don't think it's a playoff team, but no, no, they have. They still have Kyle Hamilton, right? And they still have a lot of of interesting weapons there. So um, I'll be curious to see kind of what that team looks like. Maybe yeah. Kyle Hamilton stayed, didn't he, or did he declare? Uh, let me double check here real quick. This is this is great pod, but we. <laughs> Yeah, I'm trying to remember just off the top of my head. It's hard to keep straight because so many kids declared. Like all of the quarterbacks who are getting drafted in the NFL draft are all underclassmen, for example. Like they're yeah, all guys with another year. He's coming back. Oh, he is? Okay. Yeah, I yeah, thought so. Because so, um, he's going to be, be like a top five team. pick. I mean, he's like yeah. – he's the probably the leader for the Thorpe Award and all those things going into the, the season um, for them and – then they run into Georgia with their future Heisman quarterback, JT. I can't even say that with a straight face. Uh, I watched JT Daniels. I was at the Peach Bowl and was not impressed with him. Um, he looks like a guy who's going to get sacked like 50 times a game. Like, just holds the ball way too much. Big arm, interesting guy. Like, can make some plays downfield, but my God, they're going to get him killed if he can't figure out how to get the ball out of his hands faster. But they play like the, a Charmin soft schedule. Their schedule is easier than Georgia Tech's schedule. It's just hilarious to me. You're supposed to be yeah. running this SEC gauntlet. And uh, I forget who do they play. Um, give me a second. I'll they open with Clemson, right? They, uh, yeah, I think that's the – they played Charlotte, right? Yeah, yeah. I think, and then uh, they play this – Murderer's Row of games, UAB, which, you know, okay, that's a, that is a high-level G5 game. South Carolina is going to be terrible. At Vanderbilt, who's terrible. Arkansas, who's not great. At Auburn, who's bad. Kentucky, who has a bad offense. Florida, who's replacing their entire offense. Missouri, who's bad. At Tennessee, who's terrible. Charleston Southern's their warm-up for Georgia Tech. And then they play Georgia Tech. I mean, that is just – that is not a – like, I, I don't know, man. That is not the same as, like, a lot of what these other teams are playing. And it's funny how they always manage to keep playing, like, the the their non-rivalry game, crossover game. They keep playing, like, Arkansas and Mississippi State and Ole Miss. And somehow they keep not playing A&M. And they did have to play Alabama this year, but that was because they changed up and they played more games. They played two extra games. Yeah. I still, uh, I still can't believe that Mississippi state played that game in Athens against UGA because they were getting players or whatever it was. Yeah. Yeah. They were getting on the plane and they were, they lost two more players to COVID like literally not while they were on their way to the airport, but like maybe an hour before. They found out that two kids had, had tested positive, and then 
Oh man, I, I felt good. But Vanderbilt, Vanderbilt was able to back out of it, and they had less guys yeah. out than they did, which I find fascinating. Just yeah. goes to show you how politics work in in the SEC. At the time, Georgia was still on the hunt, I guess, for the East, so they made them play that game. And yeah, I can imagine there was mathematically out. Vandy was able to to scoot out a plan. I can imagine there was a conversation between the, the commissioner and the AD at Mississippi State, kind of you know nicely nudging him and, and basically showing him a picture of their their airplane getting on getting they're getting on to go to Athens. I don't really think they they had a choice. No, I think that uh, they were probably told you have to do this. And you know what they they played a they played a damn good game. Yeah, they put a little scare into them. Um, their offense was a little more capable. They might have upset them. I was I was really underwhelmed watching Georgia as a little side note here. And even watching them in the, the bowl game with Cincinnati, it was not a very good offensive team, in my opinion. And they got pushed around for like three quarters by Cincinnati's defense. So, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting. I still think it's – they're just so loaded up with talent, though, man. Like, if – he basically Kirby's got to not screw up and like they should win nine, 10 games. Like with the schedule they have, you know, and it'll be that Clemson game will be really fascinating. I think it it tur- will turn out to have been a huge benefit that, that Trevor Lawrence was down with the COVID and they were able to see DJ play a little bit quarterback and get him those, that real competitive game experience going into the season for Clemson. I think that's going to make a huge difference for them. I'm, very fascinated to kind of see how um, that Clemson team looks too, because they've kind of shuffled some things on their staff. So that should be a pretty interesting game. And then, uh, you know, it's, I just, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing kind of um, the evolution of what Georgia tech is either offensively or defensively. I think, you know, they showed huge strides on offense, I'm not the biggest Dave Patnode fan. Like I've um, clearly been critical of the guy, but I think they showed a lot of strides on offense from year one to year two. Um, though I still don't understand a lot of what they're doing, but they were much better. I mean, the bar was set really low, but the defense regressed in some ways. So that's going to be a really interesting piece of all of this to watch you know, figure out the kicking game. You can't be bad for three straight years in kicking. That's, that's a very much at the top of the, the flagpole kind of concern. Cause uh, Jeff Collins is very much a special teams oriented guy and prides himself on that. And if you're bad again, that reflects really poorly on him. So I imagine yeah. they're going to, they should look better. And if they don't, I think there's, at that point, you got to look at hiring a full-time special teams coach or something. They got to change something drastically in that regard because that's that's one of the things you shouldn't be that bad at, right? They figured out the kickoffs. They got kickoff under control. They obviously had great punting. Um, kick return and punt return were not great uh, by any stretch, and they had another meltdown and punt return. But the kickoff, the the field goal PAT, just can't you can't take that weapon out of your offense. Like, and that was what happened this year is they had to basically go for it outside of like the 25, which is not really a, a great situation to put your offense in. It puts everyone under a lot of pressure. And, uh, you know, the, the million dollar question, the thing that I get asked about the most, I was on Chuck Oliver's radio show on Thursday and we're talking about Jeff Sims. Like, 
you want to see progression from him. Um, he showed a lot of really interesting traits that I liked, um, particularly the one that impressed me the most throughout the season was, and sometimes he got caught with this a little bit, but his ability to stay in the pocket and let plays develop and, and had, he had a really good feel most of the time for the pocket and when to step up and how to slide and move around in the pocket much more than people thought people thought of him more as a runner. And he actually looked much more like a, a natural down the field passer in terms of his pocket feel. So can you develop that, protect him? Um, And then, you know, the big thing I think with the Georgia tech offense too, is you got to have some vertical threats down the field uh, from your receivers. You can't, and it can't just be, you know, last year, last two years has been a Marion Brown. Who's a, you know, five foot nine, 160 pound guy. Like that's not going to cut it. You need a guy who can beat a corner physically at six foot plus. They can run like that. They have Avery Boyd who's like that. Um, he's, he's an X factor guy to me, like going forward. I think he's a guy that I, if he's healthy, I think he, he brings a little bit of that to, and then they have Nate McCollum and the two freshman slots they brought in. So it'll be interesting to see kind of what that evolution looks like, how they figure out how to get the ball. If I'm, um, Dave Patton and I'm spending this entire offseason figuring out how to get Jameer Gibbs the ball in space. Every yeah. which way possible, man. Like jet sweep him, whatever you got to do, like use him as a decoy. Like he is a guy that teams are going to target every play. So that's a that's the big things that um and the defense just has to look better. Like you can't give up all those big plays like they did. And I think if you have a better pass rush you'll get out of that situation where you're allowing teams to dictate things to you and you can't get off the field on third down, which has been really big, big struggle for them as well. So there's a lot of stuff for Georgia tech to work on. Spring ball is six weeks away. I think right now, give or take maybe seven. Um, depending on, I, I don't know. I don't have March in front of me, but middle of March, they're going to try to get going. Assuming everything's cool. So that's, that's ahead. Um, turning the page a little bit. Uh, right now, Georgia Tech bat, men's basketball is in the worst part of their schedule for the season. Um, this is sort of the, the death gauntlet. Um, uh, you know, not aided by the COVID situation where they lost um, games against Pitt and NC State that were very winnable. Uh, to to uh, one to Tech being down and then NC State being down, so they beat Clemson and then you lose at Virginia and then you lose um, to uh, Duke, and you know people are booing the Duke. That Duke team may end up being in the tournament before the season's over with. It that's a talented team. Um, they should have won the game, but that was a talented team. And now they play they play back to back. Uh, you know, top 25 teams and Florida State and Louisville. I'll be curious to see Louisville just lost to Clemson. So be interesting to see if they drop out again or not. But uh, you got Florida State this weekend. Um, it was a tough game. The the game in Tallahassee earlier this year, or I guess, was that technically last year? Uh, yeah, it was December 15th. It was the day before the first yeah. signing day. Yeah, uh, ended up losing by thirteen, I think, in that game. And um, 
as a little bit of a mismatch would be interesting. This is the best Florida State team I've I've ever seen them have. Yeah, maybe maybe last year's team was even better, but yeah. I mean, yeah, maybe I, it's a real push. I think this team plays. I think the basketball they're playing is better. I think they may have had more talent last year, um, but it, there were times where they got kind of ground down and did some weird stuff offensively with that talent. Like I think. They didn't. They maybe had some guys who didn't share the ball as well, um, and were trying to to do some things that weren't smart. And this team seems to be playing a little bit more together to me. But it should be an interesting game. People are like, if they go zero and four in the stretch, they're done. I don't think so. You're still not even halfway through the season right now, um, and you know things lighten up a little bit after the Louisville game. They play Notre Dame. You get Virginia back here, which is a tough game. You play at Clemson. They play Boston College, Miami, uh, Virginia Tech, Syracuse, and Duke again here. And those are all winnable games. You end the season at Wake Forest. So, like, then you have the ACC tournament, which people keep discounting, but they're definitely going to play. So, uh, you know, they've shown they can play with everybody, right? And the one thing to me that stands out about watching this team this year, and Russell, you, I've seen them in person mostly, and you've watched the, all the games on TV. This is a fun team to watch, and this is the first time that I think Georgia Tech's had a fun team to watch in, you know, really probably since the last tournament run. This, to me, is the best team they've had probably since, like, 04. Um, but the last tournament run they had, which was, like, 09-10 with Favors and Amon Shumpert and Ghani Wall, that was a fun team to watch. They played above the rim some. I think this is a pretty fun team to watch. And I, I mean, is that kind of your, been your take watching the games on TV? Yeah, I would say so for sure. I think, uh, you know, since early in the season when they made the switch to go to the, the kind of small ball lineup with, with Moses at the five, I think that that's really kind of helped the, not just the watchability, but like you said, kind of the, the fun to watch type of thing. Cause you've got, you've got DeVoe and Alvarado playing on the perimeter and then you've got Moses in the middle. You know, Moses is all over the floor still, you know, shooting, you know, rebounding, blocking shots. I think that's something that I noticed when I was watching the Duke game is just how how much he's improved his, his timing just from, from last year when we would watch him. I'd watch Georgia Tech games from time to time. Just how much he's improved his, his on-ball defense and, and shot blocking. There was, a, there was one play where Duke was coming down on the fast break and he had it lined up to block, and I don't even know if the guy even kind of saw him. But he, he lined it up, and, and he's also learned to, to block the ball, you know, like the announcers say, and keep it in bounds to where it leads to a fast break. Yeah, and, he's you know, not shooting when, it into the stands. Right, and that's when that's when Georgia Tech's the most fun to watch, you know, with, with Alvarado and DeVoe on the perimeter and on the, on the break especially. You know, Alvarado just completely can take over a game, and, and that's something that I don't think – Georgia Tech fans have seen in quite some time. Yeah, I mean, that that piece of it. And then I think the two guys who are really the most un, unsung in all of this are, are Jordan Usher and Bubba Parham, the two other starters, who yeah. Jordan Usher's closeouts on, on switches in their zone is, is something to behold because the way he's able to rotate and use his length to bother shots. Because um, when, when you're playing in a zone, there's always going to be an open shooter if they can move the ball around okay. And his ability to double back and go and catch that corner shot and get his arms up and stuff is impressive. And then 
he's fun to watch on the breaks with with Alvarado oh, the yeah. way he runs the court. And then Bubba Bubba takes like three charges a game. Like yeah, it's unbelievable in transition a lot of times too. He's able to he's quick enough to set his feet, get back, set his feet. So you know, and then he has you know starting to get a little more confident with his shot. I'm still kind of been surprised at how much he's kind of struggled at times to shoot the ball, but he's a very good three point shooter. And defensively, he just gives things, kicks things to another level. And one good thing that he does as well is he can take, handle the ball. So it takes a lot of pressure off of Jose. When those guys get tired, you let him bring the ball up the court and set them into the offense. And it gives Mike and, and, and Jose a break. Mike DeVoe played really poorly in these last two games. So that's what will be interesting going in this Florida State game because he played one of his best games in Tallahassee. Is he due to, to kind of break out? He's always been kind of an up-and-down player, uh, and he just had two down games in a row, and I think that really hurt them a lot. And that's where this will all get really interesting. And, you know, hopefully they can they can look good. If you upset Florida State here, I think it puts you in a really good shot to to get into the tournament or if you beat – Louisville on the road. I think I said, you know, my scenario was I thought their best case scenario in this four game stretch was to go two and two. And I said, I wouldn't be shocked if they go one and three. So if you split these last two games, I think they're still sort of where I had them pegged going through the season. And then they're the way they're going to get in is um, they've got to take care of the teams that are the games that are winnable, the Notre Dames, the Clemsons, the Boston College, Miami, Virginia Tech, Syracuse, you got to take care of those games in Wake Forest. And if you do take care of those, you should finish in the top six in the league. And in my opinion, that's going to put you in the tournament. I think there's been a lot of um, sort of positive buzz on them too because of the way they've played and people liking Jose and Moses and that kind of story and how those guys developed, I think they will get a little bit of a benefit of the doubt too when it comes tournament time over some other teams, given kind of how hard their schedule's been. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd agree with that. And, uh, you know, you know, with, with Bubba, it's also interesting to watch is just how active he is in rebounding. You know, somebody oh, sure. that little who can uh, just get, get a contested defensive rebound or, you know, is out there tipping the ball, trying to make plays. I think that's something that, you know, really doesn't show up in the box score. I mean, unless he actually does get the rebound, but it's just stuff like that. And then you were talking about DeVoe having a, an off past two games. I mean, it seems like when that happens in the past, when he's had a down two, two game stretch, maybe even a three game stretch that, you know, when he comes on, he comes on like, you know, Alvarado finished the, the Duke game with 26 and, you know, it wouldn't surprise you or me if DeVoe ended up with over 20 points on Saturday against Florida State, would it? No, and I think the big key there is, and this is something we've talked about with Passner, if you get two of the big three guys to play really well and the other one just plays okay, they're in good shape. If all three play well, then they can play with anybody. And when only one of them plays well, which was sort of the case in Duke, Moses had a really off game on offense. He was 6-17, of I think, shooting, and didn't get to the line much and kind of had some bad shot, took some bad shots whereas Jose played at a really high level and Mike and, and Moses didn't, that's, yeah. that spells a loss. And so I think you, if when you have two of those guys play well, um, that's when they, they're really dangerous because you can still get a nice game from an usher or a Bubba Parham or 
Cleed more off the bench has done it in a game uh, this season. And all of those guys are, are, are able to give you that lift. Whereas, you know, in that Duke game, they benched Mike DeVoe the second half of the game. Like they played Khalid and they played um, Kyle Sturdivant in his place yeah. and, and both played much better than Mike had been playing. And the issue there was they just dug a halftime hole and then got down 11 and really were just fighting to claw their way back the whole game and couldn't get past, you know, being plus one or plus two. So, yeah, it's, it's going to be an interesting thing to watch them. I think people need to, that are down on them are kind of crazy to me. I was like, what are you watching? Like, this is the best team I've watched this team, this entire stretch of them sucking uh, for like the last decade. And, yeah. The way they ended last season and right now is the best basketball I've seen Georgia Tech play since the, you know, probably mid 2000s. So I think people need to 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 chill out a little bit with the the craziness. And we'll see how many games they're able to make up to. They still need to make up a couple more. Uh ideally they want to make up the the game at Notre Dame and the Pitt game and the NC State game. And if they can squeeze those in, those are more wins. And so they're going to try to do that. And as I said, every week a different team goes down. Boston College is the one that's down right now. So um, we'll see what happens. That can open up some opportunities for them to add games here or there uh, and slide some things around as the season progresses. They can still play some Thursday games too um, in February. That's a definite possibility. So, you know, kind of chill out. Let's see how the season plays out. I don't think anyone needs to be putting – any extra pressure on anyone. It's not like they're going to fire anyone in a, in a COVID year. So relax, right. watch the games, try to enjoy yourself. Like, yeah, that's I mean, the best advice. Especially after the recruiting class he just signed. Yeah. I mean, they signed the best recruiting class they've signed since probably the one with favors in it, uh, MUFON. So, you know, just, you got to let these people do their jobs and, and they're building the program. They finally have some momentum, like let them carry their momentum right now. And don't be so anxious for certain things to happen. They got the biggest thing that happened to this team is not something that um, could have been predicted by Josh Pastner. You had James Banks leave as a senior, right at the center position. They were sure. And they were right at the time they would be able to go out in the off season and find a big man. Right to come in and play as a one-year guy. What ended up happening is because of COVID, a bunch of people didn't transfer. Like a lot of kids stayed put. There were like three transfer big men in the portal, one of whom went back to his original school. One of them was Olivier Saar, who ended up at Kentucky, which has been a complete and utter disaster for them and him and his total, totaled his draft stock. And then the one other guy went somewhere out West Oh, no, it was the guy that went to um, – it was the white guy that can shoot. Where did he go? Um, I want to say he went to, like, Iowa or someplace like that. Um, a guy who could shoot. Zabia yeah, as a center. I can't think who – but he was never even that serious with Georgia Tech. And one of the things that – when I was talking to Coach Pastor um, about this, he said that, you know, one of the things that hurt them too in that situation is they're really good when they get kids on campus and kids get to be around like Jose and the guys on the team. You just lost all of that. And you, they couldn't see the chemistry and the camaraderie of the team. And they're just going on, you know, the little bit of video they watch. The teams are, 
uh, the couple of kids that were available were all just leaning towards going to like something that's a known quantity, which is sort of what happened to Olivier Saar. He took yeah. the biggest offer he got and jumped on it. It was a terrible fit for him. Um, yeah. And, you know, cause that whole team's premise is playing with a big man who can shoot from 18 plus. And that is not Olivier Saar. Olivier Saar is a low post guy that, you know, plays around the rim like James Banks. If you put Olivier Saar on this team right now, Georgia Tech would be in the top 15 in the country, in my opinion. Like, yeah. And they tried, but he wasn't interested. And so it's like, there just weren't yeah. the guys. Normally there's like 20 guys, like the transfer. Like I can tell you, because I look at all this portal stuff all the time in the off season. And there just weren't. There was like guys who barely played that were getting picked up by people because there were so few big men available. So um, that, that, that was sort of a, and then ended up with Rodney Howard and um, who wasn't ready to play. And, and Saba, who's a guy who has a lot of tremendous talent, sort of um, a little bit further along than Moses was when he got to Tech. So those guys are still like two years away from being like primetime players. And yeah. so you're in a tough spot. And that sucks for Josh that they didn't have that opportunity to add that one. Because even if you just had a um, – to go back in Georgia Tech lore, if a, you had a Daniel Miller or um, – DeMarco Cox from the Brian Gregory era, who they got as a one-year rental, or a Nick, um, what's his name? Nick, 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 Nick. Who's from Alabama, transferred to Georgia Tech. Nick Jacobs, I think was his name. Um, you know, if you have someone like that that um, can just come in and, and play and that would make make a huge difference on this on this team, and it just doesn't. Yeah, I was right, Nick Jacobs. Um, yeah. You know, just a, a, a real center, but instead they're playing Moses out of position a little bit. It shifts the whole team. You are a smaller team because you can't play Usher at the three, and you're playing Bubba way more, and they figure out how to make that work, and that's been a hell of a coaching job, but it's not necessarily what they intended, and so – no, and it's not a long-term fix either. Like, no, no, you get you get matched up with uh, a mid-major, like uh, somebody in the MAC who has a seven-footer and can can cause problems. I mean, the, you're ripe for an upset right there, first round. And, yeah, so uh, I mean, it's a, you know, it's going to be interesting. They're not in a situation either where you had a bunch of weak games at the beginning of the year to to go and get those guys. You know, the Rodney Howards and and um, Saba's that work. And, you know, it's funny is the one guy who actually sort of looked good and the little bit we saw him was Jordan Mecca, and then he goes down with the back injury for the season. He actually was showing some really good defensive uh, tendencies and, and his rebounding was probably the best of those three guys. And his backs just wasn't right, and they had to shut him down for the year. He played, I think, um, just the – I think did he play one game or he played two? They played one game, and – yeah, you know that's that's tough, man. Like, so, you know, th- this is um, a much improved team. Um, Jose's really fun to watch. Uh, you know, Moses really fun to watch. Mike Devoe can be fun to watch when he plays within himself, doesn't yeah. turn the ball over. And agreed. 
I think it's going to be exciting to kind of see how this team does down the stretch. You got to shoot free throws better. That's still been a little bit of a problem too, but I'm encouraged by what I'm seeing. And if you're not, I don't know what's wrong with you. Like based uh, your expectations are all out of whack for what's going on right now and, and how the program's being supported um, both financially and, and just kind of where they are as a program right now. This is not Georgia tech when Bobby Kremens left, this is, you know, they always make the joke about, um, you know, David Letterman and Jay Leno were fighting over the Tonight Show when Johnny Carson retired, right? And um, there, no one can ever take over Johnny Carson's Tonight Show. And this is a reference way too old for Russell, but people listening will get this. Like, th- that show is never going to exist anymore. The Tonight Show is basically Russell. Like, Johnny Carson was like what everyone watched when they were going to bed or late at night and in the country that was back when there was like four channels you had pbs abc nbc and cbs and that was it maybe you're like uhf you had a couple of local stations that showed like reruns so everyone watched the same things on tv well as cable grew that the audience diminished 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 and then you know now the one that jimmy fallon hosts is probably like you know a hundredth of the audience of johnny carson's tonight show like it's not the same thing, right? Georgia Tech basketball is not, this is not the program that Paul Hewitt took over. Paul Hewitt had his issues and then they made a bad hire in replacing Paul Hewitt with a guy that was being run out of Dayton and he and Brian struggled and missed on a couple of key guys and then it just really fell apart. And the team that Josh Passner took over was god-awful and he won that first year pretty well with them. And then he had his own issues and he's kind of recovered from it. So give the guy some time. Cause if you hit reset now, I think it just sets you back that much further from the Jamie Dixon's not walking through the door, the equivalent of that, you know, the great example I give everyone is Shaka smart at Texas has really struggled. And he was considered the top like mid-major coach in the country when they hired him. And he was going into a program that had had success it was not that far removed from it. And he's just now started to get them turned around. Sometimes it just takes time. Like if you're not going to cheat or cut corners, uh, it takes time. And, and that's something that people need to be cognizant of as they watch this whole thing unfold and not be so emotional about it. Uh, it's funny to me that a lot of people willing to give Jeff Collins so much rope don't see the the parallels with the basketball team where Josh Passner took over a team with six points per game returning his first year. Um, that was it. Like there was nothing on that team and he figured out a way to win with, you know, kind of misfit toys and developed Ben Lammers and then developed James Banks, who are both guys who barely played under the previous staffs at uh, James Banks at Texas for transferring. And then Lammers here with, with Gregory. So I think you can see the pieces of the puzzle and the, the guard development and all that. And they're, they're still sort of one guy away from really being that next level team. Like if you put Debo Coleman on this team and had him playing instead of Bubba Parham, um, I think that would be the difference here too. That could be something that swings things. So, and they've started to recruit those level of guys. So you got to continue to be patient. I know it's hard to hear sometimes for people, but it's the truth. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And, uh, you know, patience and, and recruiting don't, don't normally 
don't really mesh very well, especially for the, uh, you know, the the super fans is what I like to call them, the ones who are you know all in on literally everything that's that's posted, talked about, tweeted, you name it. There's a question about it. There's you know something about it. Um, and with recruiting right now in Georgia Tech, there you know we talked about at the beginning. You know, signing day is we're recording on Thursday night. It's you know six, almost just five days away, and uh, there's. There's no rumors going on about Georgia Tech. There's no real targets. There's there, there's there's nothing in terms of the 21 class, and I think that's kind of got people a little bit anxious and, and thinking so much about the 22 class that they saw Georgia Tech and Julian Lewis, you know, part ways with one another last week, and they're like, okay, so when are we going to start getting the the commits? And you know, with the 22 class, uh, you know, it came out earlier this week that the the dead period does seem to be ending and um, while coaches won't be able to go on the road and see kids it sounds as if kids are going to be able to see the coaches on the campuses and and, and that is going to be a, a massive relief for for schools like georgia tech in a in a city like atlanta where they they go off so much of the the atmosphere and the energy of the the staff the program and and really even the the current players uh, i i think that you'll see in the 22 class the the current players on the roster play a, a significant role in the additions that will come via the the 22 class yeah and i think everyone's got to be you you know the the numbers game is going to be huge for this 22 class and the the schools that manage it well and are a little more patient are going to benefit in the long run from that patience. I think as, as this plays out, cause no one knows right now what those numbers are going to look like in terms of scholarships. So I think it, it's a, a situation where, uh, and, and the other thing is um, you got to be a little more careful with, uh, with how you, you know, how you use your ships now, if you're Georgia tech, because you've got so many kids who are underclassmen, they're going to have like 40 freshmen on the team next year, technically, um, you know, like because of the way things are being counted and stuff. So it's like when you really sit back and look at it, it's something to really be uh, to, to start to understand now why they're going to be a little more careful and, and maybe, you know, even sign a smaller class than usual. And that may in, impact their ranking. But um, I feel like the, the, the talent level is going in the right direction, right? They just may have oversold um, initially where they were going to end up in recruiting rankings year to year until we can figure out a way to calculate in transfers and some of these other factors that are, that are maybe becoming more prominent in terms of how we, we do our jobs every day. Um, yeah. It's going to be real. That's going to be a really interesting piece of all this and, something that will be kind of fun to go back and look at probably in a few years as well with, with Georgia tech is if we can figure out a way to, to kind of account for, for transfers, how that, how they fit into the bigger picture. Cause right now I can tell you like, you know, I could give you an estimate of where someone would fit in if you went back and looked at their high school ranking, but that's not really necessarily super accurate. So you could go back and um, I could theorize what they would be ranked as a transfer I figured out, but the issue is you can't see where you fit against other people, which is one of the beauties of our recruiting system is seeing how you measure up against your opponents. Right. And, and what your recruiting ranking is versus theirs. So um, 
all that stuff's going to be real interesting with, with the staff and, um, you know, as the, the, it started, the roster's very much their own now. And how do they develop players? What's the culture like? What's the winning like? Um, those things are the things that are start, start, that will start to be more apparent now as, uh, you know, this continues to unfold. And I'm kind of excited to see what, um, what the, the, the future looks like for this program because I think they have a decent plan and I like the personalities they have. I think they have a really good recruiting staff in place. But, you know, is that going to translate to on the field? And that's been sort of the big question everyone's had right now. And I think that's something that's going to be answered this year one way or the other because if they don't start to translate it, then that's when you may see whatever changes, you know, come around. Yeah, no, no, I, I definitely can, can agree with you on that. And, uh, you know, touching back on your, your point about patience, I mean, I can, I can count on, on barely one, maybe even touching the, my second hand on the amount of kids that they could take and they would take, like in a normal class, like let's say that they, they had room to sign 25 in the 22 class. I, for one, believe personally, in my opinion, they would have either four or five commitments right now. Sure. Uh, they would have they would have a, a linebacker. They would have a DN. They would have a D tackle, and they would have a, a, at least one offensive lineman. Um, but it doesn't seem like they're they're going that route. You know, in in the past, a lot of coaches will go and they'll build their class from the they'll start out with the core. You know, you'll start out you'll you'll add the quarterback commit, which is you know, the most talked about recruit in on JOL these days is um, the quarterback position. And then from there you add your, like I said, the core of your class, you know, the, like the five sixes. The five well, you get your, and you get your offensive lineman and yeah. the quarterback helps you with and the, and then he starts to piece together through his relationships. Um, some of your class as well, usually the quarterback and usually it's like a DB <laughs> that take the kind of center stage in terms of on the defensive side to set, set up the, the, the class for you but as you said that a lot of teams are just kind of holding back i mean and uh, you know other than maybe like a five-star quarterback um not everyone's kind of rushing into it if you if you have a bunch of guys who are similarly ranked on your board it's sort of a tricky situation right now to take yeah take one and, and alienate others and in georgia tech's case they're trying to take two probably so it's like you yeah. got to be really careful of how you set those two guys up because clearly what just happened with the two they signed before didn't work out with Tuck and, and Jeff. You ended up losing one and put yourself in the situation where you have to take two again. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think that's why you would see it the, uh, the kind of the other way around, you know, Sims was the more hyped and talked about. Sure. I mean, I, I almost felt bad for Tucker at a couple points because you know, he was getting passed by in everybody's mind the moment it became even a possibility that Jeff Sims would end up at Georgia Tech. And, um, you know, the it, it, it could have weighed on him mentally, you know, adding a, a second quarterback in the class so late. But with the 22 class and my mindset and my opinion on how I expect them to go about it is I expect them to add that Jeff Sims caliber quarterback first. Yeah, they t- and, they're going to take their top guy first. And, and – and, and then Jeff, the, the whole thing with Jeff, too, was just a random happenstance where 
he was not happy with the coaching change situation at Florida State. That was like sort of a perfect storm situation, whereas you're unlikely to see a repeat situation like that. You're not going to see Kirby Smart get fired and Gunnar Stockton be hanging. Well, say it's highly unlikely that Kirby Smart gets fired this offseason, uh, short of him getting somehow fingered in the mess at Tennessee which Dan Patrick keeps alluding to, which I find fascinating, but short of, short of that, you know, and someone like that coming available, I think if you're taking, you know, whoever it is, MJ or whatever quarterback that they decide to go with uh, or commit, they, they close on, um, you're not going to over recruit that guy in the back end accidentally. Jeff Sims was like a, a fluke opportunity for them that that kid came open and, they were able to close that so quickly before someone else was able to come jump in. Um, That's like a once in a lifetime situation almost that that situation comes up and someone of that caliber comes free uh, at at a quarterback position. So a good problem to have. And um, if you, like you said, you then take the next one understanding that, uh, you know, he's, He's not – he's working from behind to go, you know, from the get-go and is going to have that kind of mindset going into it that I got to work my butt off and it's going to yeah. be an uphill climb to get on the field. That's a totally different situation. And and guys tend to embrace that role. I mean, you look at Shaden Perry. He he certainly was aware of it um, yeah, after his commitment and seeing Jeff, you know, like play. It's not like he was oblivious to what was going on and still stuck with his commitment. So – um, you know, you look at those things and you just got to find the right guys and you you can't be in a situation where you have a quarterback or two leaving every year. They had two leave this off season. That's, that's not ideal. It's not the situation you want to be in. You can take one, but not two. Right. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. And the, uh, the analogy that comes to my mind when, you know, we're talking about a, a two quarterback class is the, the draft when uh, Washington D.C.'s football team—I don't know what they're called these days—they don't really have football a team. Yeah, so when they took uh, Robert Griffin the third, and then they took Kirk Cousins. Oh, that's um, right! I forgot about that. In the same draft, like that's the kind of situation that Georgia Tech wants to play themselves into. That's the the quarterbacks they they want to add. They don't want to add somebody who is just going to sit on the bench for for four years. You know, they want to. They want to add a, a second quarterback who is going to, you know, help develop and practice, you know, really help in terms of getting reps with the other receivers and, and being ready to come in during, you know, mop-up duty in games like the, the Kennesaw State and Northern Illinois games, for example. You know, to, to get reps and to be ready and to, to develop a, a backup quarterback. Because, I mean, right, right now you've, you've got a backup quarterback in Jordan Yates and, and eventually Jordan Yates is going to move on. And you've got Jaden Peary, who's a, a true freshman now, and he's developing kind of into the same way. But after losing so many, you know, bodies in that room, you have to refill them. Well, and the hit rate's day not day. the hit rate's not super high on quarterbacks to begin with. Let's be honest yeah. about it. Yeah, exactly. So you got to have more. You can't just have one guy. And we've certainly all witnessed. I mean, at Georgia Tech, we've seen uh, a lot of quarterback. Um, uh, turnover over the years, just academics or um, guys getting hurt and not being able to physically withstand it. 
just stuff like that. And that happens and you got to, you got to be prepared because the quarterback's always like one play away from being done, you know, getting his shoulders broken or an arm or something or whatever. It's such a, that it's such a volatile position with the way they get hit compared to every other position on the field. So you can't go in, you can't have a huge gulf between one and two. And I feel like right now there's a, it seems to be a significant gulf based on what I've seen in games between, between, where Jeff Sims is able to play and where Jordan Yates is. And, um, yeah. you know, maybe Jordan can narrow that down in the off season, but it, to me, it seems like he's a weird fit in this offense for whatever reason. And they need someone to come in and push him too. I think that he needs to feel pressure to be that backup quarterback too. I think the worst thing that can happen too, is that you have a, a kid that's too comfortable in that number two spot. Yeah. No, I, I agree 100% because, I mean, you never know when a helmet's going to come off and they've got to miss a play on third and four in the fourth yeah. quarter. I mean, there's there's all kinds of situations that can play out to where you want to be able to rely on a second-string quarterback to run the exact offense that the first-string quarterback can run. You don't want to have to throw out plays or to cut plays out of the playbook just because so-and-so's in a quarterback. And I think that's kind of what – Georgia Tech would run into right now if, if Jordan Yates was in the game. Yeah, it's going to be real interesting to see. You know, th- that's a, a really interesting sort of play. And then you have Demetrius Knight, who's the wild card guy that they have, uh, is kind of the almost like a wildcat quarterback in some ways. Um, and wild Knight. Do they, yeah, the wild. Well, there you go. You better, you should go DM that to somebody on the staff and let them know so they can have that. Uh, Jeff can have that in his back pocket when he talks about him in the spring. But yeah, I mean, it's going to, you know, that number two quarterback thing, I think to me right now is maybe one of the biggest things that I'm curious about going into the spring fall. um, And and just to see if like a guy like Peary can come in or even Demetrius Knight and push, push things around a little bit and, and give, and let's be honest, Jeff Sims needs a push too. He needs to feel like he's got to work to keep his job. And he's a guy who's very internally motivated, but it still helps to have people nibbling at your heels to, to keep you honest. Yeah, no, I, I agree hundred percent. Well, I think we've talked about everything. We've talked a lot longer than we expected to uh, Russell. So I think we're going to wrap things up. Any final thoughts? I think we've, uh, we've kind of touched on everything. I'm, did the, the live Q&A on Thursday night, and then um, we got the mailbag on Sunday. And the Monday morning, February 1st, we'll, we'll kick off the month of February with uh, basically what I'm doing on the site instead of a actual projected class this early. It's just, you know, 20 names that I feel would be most likely to end up in Georgia Tech's class. And I think it, a lot of fans will be pretty excited when they see it on Monday morning. Perfect. Well, for Russell, I'm Kelly Quinlan, and uh, this is the Jackets Online Podcast.